0: for uh, uh to worship um the triune god um i'm excited this morning we're starting a new series from uh the book of jonah a four-part series entitled man overboard uh wisdom from the book of jonah and uh jonah is it's a timeless story it's a powerful story it's a story that's almost three thousand years old um it predates Jesus by about eight centuries, and it's, um, it has been a part of our collective imagination for for a long time. Um, it's imprinted itself in various ways um, on our imagination. Uh, stories and authors and books um, kind of reflect the influence of this story. Um, if you've grown up in church and, and Sunday school, you've probably... You know, heard this story as a story of the big fish. Um, If you grew up on the King James Version, it's referred to the story of Jonah and the whale. Uh, In the original language, the the word does not necessarily mean a whale, but just a big fish. And so you can be tempted to think um, that it's just a kid's story. But it's a powerful, powerful story um, with a lot of moving parts and... uh, It's a complex message. It's not as easy as it seems on the surface, um, and it requires some study. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through it in four parts. There's four chapters in the book of Jonah, and we're going to dedicate one Sunday per chapter. As I was studying through um, just the first chapter, I realized we probably could have spent two months alone on the first chapter. I mean, I could have spent eight sermons. There's so much there, but I'm not going to do that to you. Um, And uh, it's it's just a powerful story. Um, uh, I talked a little bit about its influence on our collective imagination um, and even modern literature. Uh, Jules Verne's uh, Captain Nemo uh, in his submarine. Some of you are familiar with that story. Um, In the Nautilus, he lives uh, in the depths of the sea, away from all civilization. Um, The story of Pinocchio. Um, where he's swallowed by a dogfish after disobeying uh, his father. Uh, and Herman Melville's, of co- course, um, Captain Ahab, um, where he strives for vengeance against the whale Moby Dick. Um, and then there's even um, Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, um, and it displays a real kinship with, uh, with the story and the traveler Jonah. So... Um, the story of Jonah has had a, uh, a huge impact um, on, thi- on, our, on our thinking collectively as people. Um, and, and just in the world, other, other cultures have, have versions of Jonah. Um, the Quran has a version of Jonah, um, other cultures and religion. And uh, it's just a timeless, powerful story. But there's some wisdom there that we want to we pull out of it. We want to glean from it. Um, the actual story dates back to um, the 8th century B.C., about 150 years after the death of Solomon. Um, And one of the proofs that Jonah is not just a parable or a story is he's mentioned as an actual prophet um, in the book of 2 Kings, where he uh, prophesies that uh, Israel will regain some of the land it lost to Assyria. And so it's believed that the story of Jonah takes place during a time when the Assyrian Empire was at a a low in its power. So if you can just imagine the Assyrian Empire at at its peak as the Middle Eastern superpower, well, during the prophecy of Jonah, it was kind of at a low, and then ultimately it came back up. And if you know your Bible history, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was ultimately destroyed by the Assyrians. Um, So these are not uh, friendly folks. Um, You don't go and borrow a cup of sugar from your Assyrian neighbor. Uh, They're a hated people by the Israelites. Um, And so what makes the story of Jonah even more curious is that um, Jonah is prophesying and told to prophesy to a foreign nation. Um, So this takes place during a time when Israel is plagued by idolatry, um, their political problems, military threats. Um, right around this time, there's the prophet of Baal, who is, uh, excuse me, Elijah, who confronts the prophet of Baal, and so there's, there's a lot of spiritual, religious, military, and political conflict going on um, during this time. Um, as we move through, as I look at this chapter, we're going to break it in three parts, and so um, I want to look at the sequence of events, which is Jonah's rebellion, specifically what's behind it. Um, the consequences for that rebellion, specifically what are the consequences, and how does God intervene. Now, I hope this doesn't feel like a heavy dose. Um, last week we talked about sin. I promise one day I'll preach a sermon, um, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I'll get there one day. But, uh, but uh, um, this is good stuff here. And so we want to, uh, we want to mine its depths. So Uh, If you turn to uh, Jonah chapter 1, or turn on your your Bibles, open your Bibles. And it says, Now when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. What should be immediately clear for us right here in this passage is Nineveh is mentioned one time and Tarshish is mentioned three times. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. God tells Jonah, arise and go, but it says here that Jonah rises to flee. So what we're supposed to see here is, number one, Jonah rebels. He does the opposite thing God wants him to do. And instead of going up, Jonah's going down. Literally and figuratively, Jonah is going down. Um But I guess the the first question that that pops into our minds is, why? Is this what prophets do? Why is Jonah going down? Why is Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord? I mean, prophets are supposed to be models of obedience, models of righteousness, models of uh, examples of holiness, right? Right. Well, what's going on here? What is Jonah's difficulty? Well, it wasn't a lack of understanding. I mean, it's pretty clear. Uh, What God is saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. It's really, I mean, if if Jonah hated the Ninevites, you'd think that he'd be pretty excited about this. Um, But that's, but there's something else going on here. Um, It wasn't a lack of understanding, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it. Pretty clear. So what's behind Jonah's rebellion? Sometimes the problem um, isn't uh, in obeying God isn't that we um, don't understand what God is saying. We have trouble, Jonah had trouble obeying God because he knew exactly what God was saying. That's where the difficulty, difficulty comes in. When we, when, when we have a clash of our will with God's will, it's not because we don't know what he's saying, it's because we understand exactly what he's trying to say. Um, Jonah's problem um, was his knowledge of the grace of God. I'll say that again. Jonah's problem was his knowledge of the grace of God. Remember, Jonah is a prophet from the north of Israel, and it's likely that um, his own family have suffered um, at the hands of the Assyrians during military raids and incursions into Israel. So this is kind of personal. Um, and all God has said is, all God has said is, tell Nineveh I'm going to overturn it. But as I said a minute ago, Jonah, he knows God. He knows, he has a knowledge of the grace of God. I'm tempted here to jump ahead of myself because this is, this is rich and juicy stuff here. But Jonah turns from God's word Right? God told him to do something, and he turns from the presence of the Lord. Now you might be thinking, well, how is that even possible? How can you turn from the presence of the Lord? God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. How is this even possible? What's happening is there's a shift in Jonah's heart. There's a turning in his heart. Um, what's interesting is the thing that we need to receive the most is forgiveness, and it's the very thing that we have the most trouble with giving to others. Isn't that interesting? The very thing we need the most is God's forgiveness, and it's the very thing that we struggle to to give out to others. You'd think that it would be easy for us. We've been forgiven, but, but time and time again in Scripture and in our own lives, we struggle with that. In fact, there's parables in the New Testament about that where you know, Jesus gives the parable of the man who'd been forgiven these you know, great sum of money. You know, the king flatly forgives him, and he goes and grabs a hold of someone who has, has a, a light debt against him, and he throws him in the prison, and the judgment against this person. Now, this is a theme throughout all of Scripture. Jonah is, in terms of the genre of Jonah, some people have said it's just a parable uh, obviously, there are people who think it's just a myth, it's just a big story, it's the biggest fish story ever told, some people say. But um, the story of Jonah is told, I believe, in poetic prophecy. It's, uh, he's, he's one of the minor prophets, but the book is poetic because the symbols and the imagery and the statements in Jonah are meant for us to, to, to think about grand issues, grand narratives of Scripture the big themes of Scripture. I mean, Jonah is really just, it's a really, really powerful story, and on the surface, you might think it's just a story about a guy who got swallowed by a fish, but there are these grand themes from Scripture that show up in the book of Jonah, um, and it's unique among all of the uh, minor prophets. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew six fifteen, if you do not forgive um, other sins, your father... Uh, will not forgive your sins. So somewhere along the line, Jonah, who is the prophet of God, he's the prophet to Israel, he's confronted the forces of idolatry. Obviously, he himself has been the object of God's grace and forgiveness, but he doesn't want to give it. Um, and there's something, there's something even more um, enigmatic here in Jonah's attitude. Um, Jonah's contempt for the mercy God might show Nineveh, and we say might because I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves in the story. If you know the story, you're probably thinking how it unfolds. I'm not going to give you that satisfaction right now. We'll get there in the coming weeks. But for now, Jonah is just guessing what God might do, and he's got contempt um, for what God might do to Nineveh. Um, Some commentators have argued that there is a theme here of brotherly resentment going on with Jonah and the Ninevites. Jonah's an Israelite. The Ninevites are other human beings, right, in the family of God. They're still created in the image of God. That's something that's hard for us to grasp, right? The, the most vile sinners in our world today are still made in the image of God. That's a hard thing to swallow. When we think of ISIS and, you know, and I say ISIS because right now, you know, 30 years ago, it might have been the Soviet Union. You know, people who embodied what it meant to be an enemy of freedom and all everything God stood for, but uh, today ISIS is, is a vile, vile perpetrator of uh, just absolute wickedness. And for someone to say, you know, uh, ISIS, those, those people are also made in the image of God. That's a hard pill to swallow. And so there's this, there's this thing going on. I believe that, it's, that it's, a, it's a worthy observation. You know, Cain resents Abel. There's the conflict between Joseph and his brothers, Um, There's a conflict between Jacob and Esau. Um, And if that's true, uh, then Jonah represents Israel in the most immediate sense. Israel, God's beloved, the object of God's grace and forgiveness and electing saving love and their contempt for the rest of the world. And so Jonah is a representative of Israel's haughtiness who has been forgiven by God Um, but instead of being a light to the, the nations of the world, they have contempt and hatred for the nations of the world. And not only that, when you hate other image bearers, when you hate other people who've been made in the image of God, no matter how sinful they appear to you, there is a contempt that you have for God. And that's what's going on here. Jonah has contempt for the Father. In fact, the single most... Uh, illustrative story in all of scripture that probably is a great parallel is the story of the prodigal son and the feeling that the older brother had for the son who'd been forgiven by the father. The son who is there with the father, he's uh, committed to duty, uh, he he hasn't left the father's side, and there's this resentment he feels that the father is going to forgive uh, his younger brother who has spent all of his inheritance on on riotous living and wild living and chasing women and all these things. And so there's all of that. All of these themes are converging here in Jonah. And for us, the benefit is because we know the New Testament, we can read some of that back into this narrative and, and get some insight. So he doesn't just have contempt for the Ninevites. There's contempt in his heart for the Father, So like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, Jonah rebels because he resents God. And as far as he's concerned, this command from God is the most outrageous request in the world. Go to Nineveh and cry out against it, and he's thinking, I'm a prophet of Israel, I'm supposed to stand up for for the law of God, the the Torah, and, 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 and true religion to my own people. You want me to go to the Ninevites? It's an outrageous request when you really think about it. When you really put your head where Jonah's head is, or you put your mind where, you know, where, where Jonah is, it's an outrageous request. And you know something? <clears throat> there are some things that God says to us, some commands that, are com- that seem completely outrageous to us. You know, Jonah, before we beat up Jonah, right? We, we, should, we need to give Jonah some slack here. Because before we, we, we come down hard on him, there are things that, that just seem outrageous, that God says, right? You know, if someone hits you in the face, turn the other cheek and let them, you know, I, I've, for years I've heard all these explanations. Well, what that really means is, actually, I think it means turn the other cheek. And that's outrageous. <laughs> if someone smacks you across the face, especially a man, right, turn the other cheek. That's outrageous. That's a crazy request. Um, love your enemies. That's an outrageous request. Don't covet. We live in a culture that is built off of coveting. I mean, every you know every company, corporation, advert—I mean, that's 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 the air we breathe. Uh, and the Bible says, "Don't covet." Remember the Sabbath. Really, there's a day that that I should take some time out to worship God in a way that I don't do the rest of the week. Remember the Sabbath. You know, someone takes your shirt, give them your jacket too. If someone asks you to go with them a mile, go two miles. These are outrageous. Uh, according to our modern sensibilities. And what I want to posit here is that when we blatantly disregard God's word, God's commands, the things that God has told us, there's, there's a latent atheism working in us. Right? You, may, you may think, that's crazy. But, but, but listen to me for a moment. <clears throat> when we disobey God, there's something... Right? We know God exists, we have the Holy Spirit, but there's something in the back of our minds that's telling us, that's just that's an outrageous request, and you know what, there's probably no God. Now, we don't consciously verbalize the, that, that statement, but there's something working in the back of us that thinks it's okay to disobey, that, that we know it's not okay, but there's something working. It's like this, this, little, this little, tiny, still, small voice telling us, there's probably no God. Whether you realize it or not, whether we realize it or not. And I think that that's what, that's what animates us because if we really knew the power and you know, the gravity of what we were doing, we wouldn't do it. But we do. We disobey. I mean, Jonah's a child of God. He's not a, he's not a heathen. He's an Israelite. He's a prophet. <clears throat> so rebellion makes us practical atheists. In practice, we're atheists. We can profess with our mouth. But when we rebel, we, we act like we don't believe. And we all have crisis moments when our faith and our obedience um, is challenged or short-circuited by the voices of doubt and rationalism and skepticism, right? I mean, even as I'm preparing the story of Jonah, I'm reading commentators, and some of them are saying, yeah, this is just a myth, and I've got to fight against that, right? We're always fighting against voices from the outside that are telling us, there's no God. The Bible's not true. <clears throat> I won't go into a, a, an explanation or a defense of uh, how a man could be swallowed by a fish and have enough oxygen to survive three days. I'm not going to do that, just like I'm not going to try to explain how a serpent in the garden talked, just like I'm not going to try to explain how an axe head in the Bible floated, uh, or how all those animals fit on that ark. But it's enough for me to say that if there is an all-powerful God, none of that's a problem. There is an all-powerful God. There is, I'm not saying if. So if you can, if, if faith has you in a place where you believe, then none of those things are really a challenge for you. Um, so rebellion can make us practical atheists. And I guess it's helpful for us to think and mull over in our hearts for a moment. Um, is there something that, that you're wrestling with right now? Is there something that you're, you're, you're fighting with God over in your heart right now? God has moved you and motivated you, someone you know you need to forgive, someone you know you need to talk to that you that you refuse to, someone who you feel has offended you for the last time. Most of us have those experiences, right? You've forgiven them, you've forgiven them, you've forgiven them. And every time you open yourself back up to them, they hurt you, right? And and you've told yourself, I'm not ever talking to that person again. And Jesus says, you know, to forgive. And 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 it's an outrageous request for someone who's hurt you. It just seems like an, an outrageous request, and that's what's going on with Jonah. It's it seems to him outrageous. So we looked at what's behind the prophet's rebellion, right? And it's helpful now for us to look at the consequences of that rebellion. Um, the Bible tells us whom the Lord loves, He loves, He chastens. And what does God do? God sends a storm which is an event of both chastening and mercy at the same time. Verse 4 says, But the Lord <clears throat> hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The, the, the use of that word hurl is interesting because you know, it doesn't say God sent uh, a great wind. It doesn't say he... He commanded a great wind. It says he hurled. And when I think of hurl, there's this image of, you know, God doing that. You know, it's and it's a unique word. I don't know that it's used really anywhere else uh, in the Old Testament, maybe just a couple other places, but it's this unique imagery um, of God with all his might sending a judgment. Sending a re- his response to rebellion, he hurls this great wind on the sea. And there's a mighty tempest, so that the ship threatens to break up. There is nowhere we can go to hide from God. David says in the Psalms, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? God gives us peace, but he never... Um, There's never a place where we can be left in peace by God. Does that make sense? Right? God gives us peace, but you can never run far away from Him and and be left at peace. That's especially for us, children of God, right? Uh, Martin Luther comments on this and he remarks and he says, Not only the ship, but the whole world becomes too small for Jonah. He finds no nook or corner in all of creation, not even in hell where he might crawl in, but he must needs expose himself to the gaze of all creatures and stand before them in all of his disgrace. So here is wisdom. God never lets his children sin well. The torment we feel uh, when we're unfaithful to God actually saves us from eternal judgment. Have you ever had that experience in your walk? God does not let us sin well. We're not good at sinning anymore. He doesn't, he doesn't let us. He doesn't, he doesn't let us just do what we want when we rebel and disobey him. We cannot be good anymore at, uh, at sinning. We have a new nature. We've been, we're new creations. He does not let us uh, and, and, and give us over to our own, uh, our own desires and wants and, and devices. And, and that's the case here with Jonah. He's not allowed to sin well. God sends a storm, and the, the, the fear and judgment of that is serving a purpose, and we'll get to that in a minute. <clears throat> so there's this contrast. We go to verse 5 and 6. The, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship. So God hurls a wind, a great wind, and... Um, and now they're hurling the cargo and to lighten the ship for them. But Jonah had gone down. Here Jonah's going down even further. The imagery that, that is, that's being conjured up here is Jonah is going down and down and down and down. It just, gets, it just keeps getting worse for him. you know. He goes down uh, into the inner part of the ship and he had lain down and was fast asleep. And the captain says to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? In other words, what are you doing sleeping? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. There's another interesting parallel here with Jonah in the ship sleeping, with Jesus in uh, Matthew um, sleeping. It's an interesting parallel, interesting contrast. Jonah is sleeping, Um, Jesus sleeps during the storm on the Sea of Galilee with the apostles. Um, Jesus sleeps because he has the power over the storm. Jesus sleeps because he made all things, all of creation is in his sovereign hand, right? But Jonah sleeps because he's persuaded himself that he's safe when in fact he's in grave danger. This is other imagery all throughout Scripture. Often sleep is, is an image of spiritual sloth, right? He who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And here's Jonah sleeping, convincing himself that he's, uh, he's safe when in, really, in reality he's in grave danger. You know, as Christians, we, um, we decry the moral degradation around us. But in many ways, um, the church has been sleeping. Um, Many churches um, have completely withdrawn from the culture around us. And the culture needs to be desperately loved by the church. And and so there's this slumber. There's this ecclesiastical slumber that the church has engaged in for some time. And this kind of... uh, break from the culture from the world around us is just the opposite what God wants us to do as his people it is the exact opposite and it's hard sometimes because you want to protect you know the influence of your family and your children you want to you want to you want to you know filter what comes in and that's good you should do that but at the same time collectively as the body of Christ God calls us to engage this world he calls us to lean into the culture. Um, a couple years ago, I, I heard a phrase called the fortress mentality. You know, there's there's three different approaches that evangelicals take. Um, one is the, um, the 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 transformationalist that you know all of the world will be changed by the gospel. You know, we like that one because you know Jesus um, seems that Jesus and the gospels promised that one. But the other one is the fortress mentality. Let's build a massive wall between us and the world so that the twain shall never meet. You know, And that's kind of what's going on here in Jonah's heart. He's saying, no, God, you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. That's, that's, that's not what I want to do. And God is saying, no, Jonah, you've got it wrong. And when we do that, God is telling us, no, you've got it wrong. This world needs the love of the body of Christ. The church mediates the grace of God to the world in words of truth and deeds of mercy. And so when we, when we shrink back from that responsibility, bad things happen. Bad things happen to the world, and bad things happen for us. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a self-fulfilling um, you know, prophecy. We look at the world and we say, man, it's getting bad. Let's not do anything about it. You know? <laughs> it gets worse. And we go, whoa, it's gotten really bad. And, and God is calling us to say, no, uh, go to Nineveh and prophesy against it. Um, <clears throat> and when I say we say prophesy, we don't mean, you know, standing out with hateful picket signs. We mean proclaiming God's truth of judgment and mercy, right? That, that's this balance. God, God says, and here's the interesting thing is judgment is an impetus for repentance. Judgment's not hateful, but judgment says, look, here's, here's the God who made everything, and one day he'll judge all things, and here's what he's done so that in the judgment, when the judge judges all things, that you can be safe, you can have fellowship with him. And that's the message uh, we proclaim. We proclaim that message when we, when we engage the world. So without the church speaking the truth um, to the world, the world becomes desperate. Look at, at verse 7, it says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Um, The men were exceedingly afraid and said, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. It's interesting, he says, this is my nationality, this is my country, but, and, and here's the God I serve, but he doesn't say his occupation. He doesn't say, I'm a prophet. He doesn't have the confidence to say that. He's, he's embarrassed because he's, he's running from God, and he cannot boldly proclaim, I'm a prophet. And they said, um, it says in verse 10, um, and the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So they're, they're wrestling with him. And even as they're talking, the swells, you know, are getting bigger and bigger. Um, As as a kid, I would spend every summer a week on Catalina Island, which is 22 miles off the coast of California. And I'd go at the YMCA summer boys camp for a week. And there was there's a boat that they would go out there. It's 22 miles. It took a few hours to get there, and it was like the Catalina Cruises catamaran, you know. And um, and so there's all these kids, and they're all excited, and you know, the, the the salt air is in your is in your face, but Sometimes it would be kind of rough because you're in open sea. I mean, you get 10, 15 miles out in the ocean and you are in open seas. Well, five miles out, you're in open seas. And it's, you know, thousands of feet deep and you're doing this, you're talking to people and when you're inside the cabin, you're looking out the window, one minute you're looking up at the sky and the next minute you're looking down at the blue water. And so even as they're talking with Jonah, Why is this happening? Why are you running from the presence of the Lord? It says the sea at that very moment, as they're talking, is growing more and more tempestuous. Um, And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Here's this word again, hurl. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now here's something interesting. He doesn't say, let me pray to my God, who I've offended, who's brought this, this storm on you, which you don't deserve, and he, so he can forgive me and spare you, he says, just throw me in the sea. That's how, that's how, that's how, that's how bad his heart was at that moment. He had rebelled so, so uh, uh, intensely against God that he would rather die he, he would just rather commit suicide. He doesn't even want to live. It's not enough to repent and ask God to, to fix it. He does not want to live. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them again. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, if you're wondering at this point, okay, when are we going to start to see some encouragement of grace? I want to say, here it is. God is recognized and glorified by the pagan sailors. Uh, Some commentators think that Jonah is a parody because the the man who represents God's holy nation is acting like a, a total renegade. And the people who are supposed to be the object of God's wrath, the pagan sailors, and later on in the next couple chapters, the Ninevites, are the ones who actually respond the right way. You know, just because we profess the name of Christ doesn't mean we always behave the right way. And some of the criticisms that the world levels against us is, is well-deserved as Christians sometimes. Sometimes we act in a way that is that is completely uh, um, um, unacceptable. I'm looking for a, a better word, a word that uh, is a little bit more uh, descriptive. Um, yeah, yeah. We act in a way that, that as, as, some, as people who ought to represent the love and mercy, for God, uh, mercy of God, sometimes we act in, in despicable ways. And some of the criticism from the world is, is just. <clears throat> we proclaim God's mercy and love, and when we see people who need to be forgiven, instead of proclaiming that mercy, right, we, we I mean, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, picket signs, you know, and... and some of the things you know, you can think of. You know, there's a—I won't even mention its name. But, you know, certain certain congregations that make the headlines and make us all look like, you know, completely crazy. And we think of that, and the world sees that, and they just go, you know, sometimes the sometimes the world has a better idea of what it means to be a Christian than we do, because we can be so justified and so self-righteous, and um, <clears throat> that's what's going on here. And and and. The pagan sailors, they've got it right. You know, there's a contrast that the book of Jonah is showing. They've got it right. Um, verses 9 through 16 says, the men feared the storm. Uh, Jonah says, I fear the Lord. And a few minutes later, um, it says the men feared the Lord. And there's this progression here. And then finally in verse 17, um, It says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, verse 17 is at the end of chapter 1, and um, I just want to tell you that uh, chapter headings are somewhat arbitrary in Scripture, so uh, chapter 1 probably should have ended at verse 16, um, when, when the Bible is assembled, you know, the, it didn't come with chapters and verses and all those things. So, <clears throat> but, but I'm going to read, uh, verse 17. It says that the Lord appointed a great fish. And this is the third part of the sequence of events. Remember the first part we said was rebellion. Why does Jonah rebel? And the second part we said is what were the consequences, right? You know, uh, for rebellion. And we've looked at that a little bit, just a little bit, um, and the third is, how does God intervene? When, we're, when we know God, when God knows us, consequences never serve the purpose of God's vengeance alone. When, when God measures out judgment for us, it's never just to get back at us and go, there, you did this, now I'm going to do this. That's what you get. It never works that way. God's, the consequences that we experience, that Jonah experiences from his rebellion serve a purpose and God intervenes here. Jonah launches, tells them to launch him into the water. He's ready to die and God sends a fish. Now, and if you've heard the story throughout the years, you thought, yeah, the fish was the judgment. You know, God judged Jonah by this fish, but the fish is salvation. The fish is God's means to spare Jonah's life. And, in, and during those three days in the fish, and we'll get into that next week where Jonah cries out from the belly of the fish, but during that time, Jonah is saved, but there's a, there's a tor- period of torment there. And there's a contrast, of course, with Jesus in the book of Matthew when they ask for a sign and he says, no sign will be given this wicked and perverse generation except the sign of Jonah who was in the belly of the whale three days. Jesus suffers in the Earth for three days and rises again, and this, there's a parallel to the story of Jonah. God God's judgment on us, when we disobey, is always for our correction. It is always to bring us back in line with His perfect will. Consequences are really God's intervention. God's not abandoning us to the sea. The sea's got so much imagery you know the chaos of the waves and the monsters of the sea you know you could call a whale a shark you know a monster if you if you like you know and 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 they're all it's all meant to bring us to bring us in line with God's will and so God intervenes here um, <clears throat> the fish is God's gracious intervention it looks like judgment but it's really salvation And if you walked away from just this chapter today, just the first chapter of Jonah, the big idea that you should walk away with is there is salvation in judgment. That when God does not let us do what we want to do and he responds with judgment, it saves us. When we disobey and when we rebel and God responds with consequences, it's actually for our own good. God breaks our will for our good and his glory. And whenever our will butts up against God's will, there's only gonna be one winner and it's not gonna be you. You know, you've heard that phrase, your arms are too, bo- too, too short to box with God. God's judgment is for our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this story that we're just beginning to scratch the surface of. Uh, help us to, um, to be increased by the wisdom from the word of God that we've talked about. Help us to examine our own hearts to see if, if, if there are ways in which we have not poured out the forgiveness that we have received to the world around us. Help us to examine our hearts. Help us, oh God, to wake from slumber if uh, there are areas of our heart, of our minds, and of our life that are in rebellion against you. Lord, we know that uh, you will be glorified and your will will be performed, but uh, we don't want to be found kicking against you. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to yield and surrender to your sovereign, gracious, and holy commands. In Jesus' name.